We are looking over our vows of membership over the next five weeks. We're going to be looking over um, what do we promise God and one another as we become part of a fellowship and as we formalize our commitments and our covenant to one another. And uh, it's interesting that our very first vow, the very first thing we do, whether we're being confirmed or, or whether we're joining from moving our letter or, or professing faith for the first time, is do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy? It's a strange question if you think of other groups. Um, I, I haven't been a member of many groups, uh, but I don't remember the Boy Scout saying, do you acknowledge you're really not worthy to be a Boy Scout? Uh, or other groups I've been part of has kind of been, you know, I'll be a nice member, I'll be part of this. But to begin our life together as saying, I acknowledge I can't do it. I admit I stumble. I get before this body, I stand before this font, and I have to confess to everyone here, I'm a sinner. I make mistakes. And the only hope I have is not that I will become good enough or that I will believe the right things, but that I trust in the sovereign mercy of a gracious God to accept me. So our first vow that we're going to look at is what does it mean for us to stand up here before everyone, whether that was uh, 50 or 60 years ago or whether that was in this past year, and say um, that I acknowledge to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope of salvation except in his mercy. Um, in a way, what we are doing is recognizing the truth of the passage from Romans that we read. And uh, if ever there was a passage that led itself to hellfire and damnation preaching, I, would, I think it would be this one. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so we begin our corporate life together standing up and saying, not only do I believe in the abstract truth of this, but I'm admitting that belongs to me. I, I'm admitting that this passage from Romans that says no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God, is first of all not just kind of general or not for really bad people, but it means me. It means I am here not because I'm righteous, not because I understand fully the creed, or even that I took the initiative and began looking for God apart from Him seeking me first. The good news is, in admitting that, we say, I come first of all for mercy. You know, we, we, uh, before moving on, I, I need to kind of take a minute to talk about, about sin. Um, we, see, we say sin, and it's almost like the punchline to a joke. It's a, it's a kind of a, a joke word. We, we hear sin, I think what we tend to do is immediately think of all these vices, um, most of which we find at least mildly pleasurable, and we kind of think, well, you know, I'm only human, I like these things. 
Or we say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, but, you know, really I try kind of hard, and I'm certainly not as bad as those people. It's not like I've killed anyone. But sin in the scripture is deeper than either the kind of joking uh, vice things that we might have a little joke at the punchline or, or for those really, really bad people, but not for us. Sin is essentially that we look to ourselves rather than God. We're turned in on ourselves rather than turned out on God and our neighbor. It is fundamentally rebellion against our creator so that our, the thoughts of our hearts, the motives of our hearts, what our imagination thinks of, our failure to trust in him all stem from this sin. So it's not just that we um, don't do those really bad things that get our paper, uh, get our, you know, um, picture put out, but that maybe we are so eaten up with jealousy inside that we outwardly are nice and congratulating someone else, but thinking to ourselves, I can't believe they got that. Why didn't it apply to me? There's times that we don't outwardly fabricate a lie, but we don't tell enough of the truth, to be honest. There are even times we do wonderful good deeds in service to the church and our neighbors, but we do it in a way that we look down on others who don't do things quite as nicely as we do. In all of those, we turn in more to ourselves. We turn apart from God. Though no one else might see it, we know that that is rebellion against Him who made us. So we want to look at... Mostly, what does it mean, how does it apply for us to confess that we are sinners as a prerequisite of joining the church, of being a Christian, of being part of this community? And um, I have more pages than usual, so I can see my outline. We, uh, first is how it affects our relationship with Christ. Second, how it relates with our relationship to each other. And finally, how does it relate to those outside of the church? Um, we confess our sins. Not only is our vow of membership of saying, I acknowledge I'm a sinner, but every time we gather for corporate worship, we recognize, uh, we pray together, we take a moment to examine our hearts and then, and then confess aloud in the presence of each other that I have stumbled, I have failed, I have not done what I know I should do. We admit our guilt and, in, and we do this to receive forgiveness. All right. So if someone were to come up to you and say, I forgive you, what would your immediate thought be? Well, it depends on what you've done. It depends on what you're aware you've done. If someone comes up and says, I forgive you, I kind of, you know, if I've been arguing with them about something and they are clearly wrong, you forgive me. You've done the wrong. I should be forgiving you. Um, or, well, she's not here today, but if Robin comes in and says, I forgive you, I'm immediately going, okay, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? <laughs> if you know what you've done, you receive it. But what I mean to say is, is to say we receive forgiveness can only happen when we acknowledge our guilt. 
If we say we receive forgiveness, you know, if, if we don't admit that we've done something wrong, forgiveness is an insult. How dare you think you forgive me? What have I done wrong to you? It is only when we come and say, you know, I have done wrong and I'm asking for your forgiveness. We, we forgive you know, and that we receive someone's forgiveness. Um, the other thing is that acknowledging that we sin is not the same as offering our excuses. C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Weight of Glory. I find that when I think I am asking God to forgive me, I am often in reality, unless I watch myself very carefully, asking him to do something quite different. I'm asking him not to forgive me, but to excuse me. But there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything between us is two will be exactly as it was before. But excusing says, I don't see that you couldn't help it or didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. If one is not really to blame, then there's nothing to forgive. In that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. But the trouble is that what we call accepting God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. What leads us to this mistake is the fact that there is usually some amount of excuse, some extenuating circumstances... But the bit that the excuses don't cover, thank God, are not unforgivable. If we forget this, we shall go away imagining that we have repented and been forgiven when all that has really happened is that we have satisfied ourselves with our own excuses. They may be very bad excuses. We are all too easily satisfied about ourselves. Do you ever find yourself confessing like that? God, please forgive me for being so short with my coworker. But you know how annoying he is. <laughs> and how much I put up with it. And, and, and I had not had a lot of sleep the night before. Do you ever do that? I hope so, because if not, you have a very bad minister. <laughs> who has to check himself every time he's confessing his sins. Uh, that he's not really pointing to others. Now, here's the thing. is Some people say, for us to come together and say we're sinners... Our hearts are twisted on ourselves. We do wrong. We're, we really, I have to admit that I'm a bad person, gives us a negative view of people. It's, 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 it's inhumane for anybody to say that people at their core are sinners. People at their core are, by nature, wicked. And that gives us a wrong view of each other. That gives us a wrong view of ourselves. And it represses us psychologically. And we get a hurtful view of others and we can treat others bad because of that. But doesn't telling people they're wonderful, they can do anything, that they're really good, they're really good deep down inside, does that produce any better results? Has it done any better for us to tell people, you are a wonderful person, anything you do is great? Um, Lori Gottlieb had an article in The Atlantic back, I think, this past spring or summer. The, the headline of it, um, or the, the cover of the magazine, had a big trophy um, that said, um, good try. <laughs> and it said, um, how the cult of self-esteem is ruining our kids. Uh, Lori's a, a counselor, a psychologist. The name of her article was, How to Land Your Kids in Therapy. 
and um, um, how to land your kids in therapy. It's a, it's a good how-to. And what she said was increasingly she was becoming aware as she was counseling 20 and 30-year-olds that she had been trained um, to look for things being passed on of, of you know, abusive um, or, or um, difficult parents and, and all these sorts of things. And increasingly, um, well, she describes a patient she calls Lizzie. Imagine a bright, attractive 20-something woman with strong friendships, a close family, and a deep sense of emptiness. She came to me, she told me, because she just was not happy. And what was so unhappy, upsetting, she continued, was that she felt she had done nothing to be unhappy about. She had awesome parents, two fabulous siblings, supportive friends, an excellent education, a cool job, good health, a nice apartment. She had no family history of depression or anxiety, so why did she have trouble sleeping at night? Why was she so indecisive, afraid of making a mistake, unable to trust her instincts and stick to her choices? What she did feel less amazing than her parents had always told her. She felt like there was a hole inside her, that she was increasingly adrift. And she said what stumped her as a psychologist, as a counselor, there was no distracted father or critical mother or abandoning or chaotic caregivers. And she tried to make sense of it. The only problem was that there was no problem. She goes on to reflect that she talked to colleagues about it, and increasingly they were becoming aware of younger people they were counseling that just were increasingly unhappy and unable to take responsibility finding themselves in psychotherapy that even their parents were paid for, completely guilty and confused, and they had nothing to complain about. And, and the article goes on to show that the parents had done everything they would have been told to of being supportive and building in self-esteem and telling the children they were wonderful and that they could do everything. And it got to after they had received trophies for just showing up on the soccer field after they had been told that there were no losers, after they told so long that they were winners, when they got to real life and the world wasn't about them, they just had difficulty coping. To say that we are sinners, to say that we have fallen, that we fail, that we struggle, is not to give a negative view, it's to be realistic. We sin. We sense that we are guilty inside because we are. We feel that there is something wrong because there is, and as the Heidelberg Catechism tells us, um, it is not until we get a deep understanding of how guilty and how sinful we are and come to that reality, that truth, that we can truly understand God's mercy and God's grace. Because if we're really not that bad, there wasn't much need for a cross. And if we're really basically good people who just need a good example, we didn't need a sacrifice. But we have to confess before all, we are sinners. We are turned to ourselves. We all look to ourselves before we look to the good of another. And that reflects how we treat one another. Not only does it relate how we, we come to God and we, we understand his mercy and forgiveness, but how we relate to each other after we have stood before a body and said, I have failed, I stumble, I'm a sinner. Um, you know, when we're welcoming someone into membership, we're not saying... Thank you, you're now as smart and nice and attractive as all the rest of us. Um, we come into the church and we vow that we acknowledge we're sinners saying, I have failed to do what's right. I struggle and I come because of God's mercy. And we invite someone saying, there's room for another sinner. 
there's room for someone else who struggles and who shares our struggle and shares failure and shares the hope of God's mercy and, and the assurance of God's mercy as we continue and, and we worship and as we come together acknowledging our guilt, acknowledging our sinfulness, it should change us radically as a community. We should relate to each other in ways that we don't relate to each other in civic organizations, at school, at work, because we have begun our relationship by saying, I blow it. I don't have it all together. I, I've made mistakes. And first off, this is a wonderful leveler. Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. When we come in here, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have, what job title you have, or how your portfolio is looking. We all are on common ground underneath the cross of Christ. We're all sinners. We all beg for his mercy. One of the reasons scripture constantly talks about the way we treat each other and the way we treat each other as equals is because of this. Because as soon as we go in another direction, as soon as we start treating one group this way and another group this way, we deny God's grace for sinners. And we begin to, to put levels within a church where there is no level. The other thing is it should lead us to honesty. Sometimes the church is the last place you could share something. Which is a shame because we've already admitted before everybody we don't do this right. The church should be a place where you can find someone. Um, um, you've heard the jokes about people coming forward and confessing to everybody and being told, I don't believe I'd share that, brother. Well, we, we, we could find times, brothers and sisters within the church, that we can share our struggles with. This should be a place where you can find someone in a small group, in a Sunday school, in, a, in a, just some friends that you can say, I'm having trouble with this. I need your prayers. Um, that should, be the, that should be there. It should be the most honest place in the world because we've admitted we mess things up. And it also should lead to patience with each other. Not only can I be honest because I've told you I'm a sinner, but hopefully I should be more patient with others who've admitted that they're a sinner. They admitted they make mistakes. I mean, how could I not? How can I not say, you know, I, I get impatient, I, I, I struggle, I make mistakes, um, but you need to be really holding up to this Christian standard. But you're not following what Jesus said. I, we need to be patient with one another. And uh, I think in, in this, I, I need to say, not, not a plead for patience, but not least, a pastor is, has taken this vow as much as anyone. There's none of us who is without sin. Um, what a great relief that I don't stand up here as an example but as one who reads what the book says and shares it and says I too sin, I too struggle I too need your prayers it affects how we relate to God it reflects how we relate to each other it reflects how we treat those outside the church one criticism of religions is that the way they treat others outside of their faith is they demonize them. Uh, people in one group look at the others and, and say they're horrible people and, and um, can be a hateful and abusive to others. And that, in many cases, is a fact. In many cases, there are groups that come in and say, we're trying to, do our, we're trying to be good Christians and the rest of y'all are sinners and, 
can be very hateful and condemning of others. There are many churches that should understand the gospel that can be very legalistic and moralistic. And it's not just it's off-putting, but it doesn't follow the example of Christ when they make enemies of anyone who doesn't share their faith. Admittedly, that happens, but that is not what should happen for a group of people who come saying, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. Because of that, because of the exclusiveness and, and things, some people have kind of said we, we need to break down our boundaries. We need to kind of eliminate the borders of what it means to be in the church or not. Can we all just agree that there's the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and all the other things are trivial and they just are barriers to one another? And then rightfully so, the women say, hang on, brotherhood of man. Anyway, um, every organization has boundaries. Every organization has, has borders that says you're either in or you're not. This is the wall of what it means to be here. And to, to, to try to say, well, let's just not believe so much and we, what we believe doesn't work. Um, let, me, let me use a, a, a ludicrous example. I've recently joined an online forum that discusses, discusses Fender Telecaster guitars. Recently got a Fender Telecaster guitar, specific type of guitar, signed up for the Fender Telecaster Forum. Now, there are certain rules on that. Don't discuss religion, don't discuss politics. You can discuss guitars. But if you want to discuss Gibson Les Paul, that's another type of guitar, another very nice type of guitar, that needs to be in another part of the forum and you're not really in this group. Even something as trivial um, though I hate to use the term trivial with less balls. Even as something as, uh, you know, unimportant as guitars sets up borders and boundaries about who's in and who's out. I mean, it's guitars, but we don't want to talk about the other type of guitar. We want to apply your, your own. I mean, could you imagine if you're, you're part of a group of a certain sports fan and somebody else wants to... I mean, there's borders, there are boundaries to every group, every group that tries to do something... And obviously we have borders. What counts is how you treat those outside those boundaries. What's important is not do you have boundaries or not. What's important is how do you treat those on the other side. If we say we come in because we've got it all together. If we say we've come in because we're smart enough to get it. We're good enough to live it. We're nice enough people. And that really being in the church is about that. We can act superior to others. We can treat others outside as though they don't really get it. And they're not truly worthy of our, our love and our patience. But if I recognize that I am in only by God's mercy. Only by his call. Only by his gift of faith. And not because I'm smart enough or good enough. Only in recognizing my own sinfulness as essential to becoming part of this group means when I look outside and see those who are not believers, those who reject Christ, those who are not part of the church, I can in no way be triumphant. I can no way look down my nose. There's no way I can, I can say we're better because we recognize our sin. Which means we can recognize the good of those who are not Christian. 
It means we can celebrate the good and we can work together with a common grace for common goals on things apart from what it means to follow Christ. It means that I can look at someone and frankly admit in many ways they're more moral than I am, though they reject Christ. I have a, a dear friend, not a believer. Honestly, he's been a much better friend for me than I have for him. And I can't say, look at me. I just have to say, I'm a sinner. I believe this is the truth. And I recognize the goodness in him and, and appreciate it with him. And it can inform that when we share our faith with others, it's always on the basis of we're a group of sinners with room for one more. It's always merely beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. So we come to God knowing we're sinners, knowing we don't deserve it. We treat others with love and honesty and patience because we've admitted to, to one another and we love everyone regardless of their status with Christ because they too are created in God's image and we have not risen above them by our own merits, but we have been accepted only only by his sovereign mercy and grace. Now unto him uh, who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine be honor and glory and power forever. Amen. Would you please stand and let us state the truth that we believe in the Apostles' Creed. <coughs>